I want to ask you guys a question and maybe think to yourself, this is not a shout out loud moment because I won't be able to hear you anyway, but think to yourself, like when you think of America, what do you think of? What's some of the first things that comes to your mind? What are some of the common mottos or phrases or symbolism or stories that come to your mind when you think of the country that we live in? So when I was uh, thinking about that very same question, there's like a few different ones that roll through my mind, but one of the, the really common mantras or mottos of our country is life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Happiness, Happiness which sounds really nice, right? And when we think of America, these are some of the things that come to our mind as rights of ours. Like as a citizen, I am entitled to my life, to my own liberty, and to my pursuit of happiness. And in parentheses, we'll even add at all costs. Now, the really dangerous part is, is when we start reading this into how we follow Jesus. Because what Paul seems to be getting at throughout the whole book of 1 Corinthians is this is actually not all about your life and your own liberty and your pursuit of happiness, but it's about something different altogether. And particularly in this portion of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the next couple of chapters, he's helping instruct this Christian church in a polytheistic first century metropolitan city how to actually live counterculturally. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he's going to use the example that we all love, food. He's talking about when you eat with people and how you eat actually communicates something about the gospel. And so we pick it up here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now because we're outside and there's crying babies and some of you cold or some of you are hot, there's going to be so many things we don't have time to unpack in this chapter. But what I really want to do is I want to hone in on the last two or three verses or so. So let's just like read through to get a bit of context and story and we'll hone in on just some of those last verses, okay? So Paul writes, now concerning food offered to idols. So just to have in your mind, think Corinth, polytheistic. Lots of people worshiping lots of different gods. And the meeting point between the human and divine were all these temples. And temples were not only just for worship, but they were places to have parties and celebrations. They were restaurants. They were marketplaces. Lots of life happens around, in and around the temple itself. And he says, we know that all of us possess this knowledge. And he's quoting a Corinthian uh, saying, all of us possess this knowledge. And this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So Paul is starting to deconstruct this idea that knowledge and wisdom and, and sophistry, the art of public speaking, is anything apart from love. Watch how he continues to flesh this out. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, he has another quote here, an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. This is the knowledge that he was talking about, that there's only one God, and there's no such thing as idols. Idols don't mean anything. Idols don't matter. And right off the bat, that actually sounds sort of correct, doesn't it? Yeah, there's only one God. Yeah, idols are powerless. They don't mean anything. But what is really fascinating is that is not actually the worldview of Scripture, that there is only one God. Now, we know there's only one Creator, capital G God, that created everything, 
but there are other, as Paul says, lords and gods, or demons, or angels, or principalities, or demons, right? All sorts of language to describe these lowercase d gods, these real but invisible spiritual creatures that are vying for your attention and affection. They are vying for your attention and affection. And the Corinthians said, oh, we we found Jesus. We have freedom in Christ. There's actually no other gods. We have nothing to worry about when we go back to these temples and eat our dinner with everybody else. We have nothing to worry about as we drag these younger Christians, more vulnerable Christians, back to the place from which they were saved, worshiping all these different gods. And Paul's saying, no, there's actually a spiritual danger that you're missing out on. There's a spiritual danger that you're missing out on when you say idols have no power and there's only one God. And when you're ignoring the other spiritual forces at work, you are going in blind to a battleground, these temples where they're eating their meals. He continues in verse five, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many quote unquote gods and many quote unquote lords, yet for us there is one God. Paul's doing something really profound here when he says there's one God, but still acknowledging all the other gods. He's reframing this ancient Jewish worldview encapsulated in the Shema, this ancient prayer around the person of Jesus Christ. However, he says, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So Paul here is saying, let's move beyond the surface problem. The real problem isn't food here. The problem is love or a lack of love in how we're treating other Christians. Verse 10, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this person, this weak person, is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. This is serious business for Paul. Thus... Sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Did you guys catch that? When Paul says you sin against a brother or sister, you're sinning against Jesus Christ. Did you guys pick up on the seriousness of what Paul's getting at? And finally, verse 13, and where I want to spend the next few minutes. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. For Paul, the seriousness of this situation is not just food offered to idols, but how we are causing our brothers and sisters to stumble or to sin, and our lack of care for them, and our personal selfishness, and quote-unquote liberty we have because of Jesus. Paul here would rather be a vegetarian than make his brothers stumble. He would rather go without something that he is entitled to, then make his brothers or sisters stumble. Love will lead us. Love for Jesus and love for for those he loves will actually lead us to love the people and the things that he loves. And our love for Jesus will actually cause us to make decisions in our life that will make us sacrifice something we want or may feel entitled to for the sake of somebody else. Because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has did, 
We are free not to do a whole lot of things we might want or think we should be able to do. Right, so often, like the Corinthians, I think we ask the question, what am I free to do? So uh, I always thought of this question. I was a youth pastor for a number of years before I moved down to Southern California. And anytime I would uh, talk about uh, sex, marriage, sexual purity, all this stuff with high schoolers or junior highers, what's like the first question that's going to run through a junior high boy's mind when we start talking about sexual purity? Like, where's the line? How far can I go? How far can I go before God gets upset with me? Or how far can I go uh, before I do something that's going to have like lifelong consequences? How far can I go until my parents are going to be mad at me or whatever? How far can I walk up to that line of sinning without actually sinning? And I believe, like the Corinthians, you and I often do the same things all the time in our life. How far can I go before God notices I'm doing something wrong? How far can I go before I catch the attention of my other brothers and sisters? And so we often ask the question, what am I free to do? What are all these freedoms I have in Christ? I'm no longer bound by sin, slavery, or death. I'm no longer bound by the laws of the Old Testament. I'm no longer bound by whatever, fill in the blank. And we say, how far can I go to pursue my own rights? Not only as a citizen of America, but as a citizen of the kingdom of God. And what Paul is getting us to do is ask a different sort of question. As apprentices to Jesus, what are we free to give up for the sake of somebody else? What am I free to give up for the sake of others or for the sake of the gospel moving forward? Right? Some of you may hate camping, but you are here this weekend anyway for the sake of your brothers and sisters because of your love for them. You want to spend time with them, maybe for the sake of your families or your kids who love this. You are free to give up all sorts of things because the gospel has freed you to actually find satisfaction somewhere else. That our satisfaction is not in pursuing life, liberty, and happiness. It's actually not getting everything we want. It's not making decisions that make us feel good in the moment, but it's actually being fully satisfied and complete in Jesus. And then in all sorts of areas in our life, what are we free to give up? Because I'm actually not satisfied in eating everything I want to eat, drinking everything I want to drink, going to the movies I want to go to, hanging out with the friends I want to hang out with, making my own decisions about what we do with our money or with our time or how we raise our kids. I'm free to give up all sorts of things because I'm fully satisfied in Jesus. And we can lay those things down because of the full and complete work of Jesus that brought us true life in his kingdom and to say, you know what, actually I don't need to pursue the things that I want to or I even feel entitled to as a right because I love my brothers and sisters and if there's even a hint or a chance it might make them stumble and might make them sin, then we're not going to do it. A little while ago in our community group, uh, we, we, Sherry and I host a community group. We lead one, and, and we love to host and have people over. And one of the ways we love to host is, is we like to have good wine out and, like, really good food and, like, you know, put on, like, a good spread when people come in over. And so when we would uh, host our community group, we'd always have, like, a bottle or two of wine out and just try to create a hospitable environment uh, until we had uh, a friend of ours uh, who joined our church, was a part of our community group, who is an active like relapse and recovery. Just that, that bounce back between finding moments of victory and relapsing back into the depths. 
And so one of the decisions we made as a community group is we're, we're free and entitled. We're not teetotalers. We're free and entitled to have really good wine out in our community group. But for the sake of our brother who's actively stumbling and struggling with this, we're just going to remove it from the equation. We could have been fully entitled to just have it out on the table and say, hey, bro, just don't drink any, you know, but you could watch us drink it. And he even said, that's fine if you have it out. Like, I'm not bothered if I'm watching other people drink it. But just to remove any shred of a moment where we might cause him to stumble, to relapse again, we just took it out of the equation altogether. So we're going to find different ways to host because we know our brother in Christ is struggling through this. And even as I unpack like that really small example from our own community group, I bet in your mind you have moments where you say, you know what, there's actually things that I want to do or I actually feel I'm entitled to do that I can lay down for the sake of somebody else, for the sake of the gospel taking root in somebody else. And I can do that, not just like begrudgingly, but I can do it gladly because I'm fully satisfied in Jesus. So this moment here in scripture is not only about laying down the things you want or feel like you're entitled to, but it's actually a really high call to be satisfied in Jesus. And so even as you're thinking of moments like, man, I should really like give this up for the sake of my brother who's wrestling with this, or I should really like think through how we're doing this in life. Maybe we actually need to take a step back and say, am I actually truly satisfied in Jesus? Is he that which truly satisfies. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I'm your total and complete sustenance. Do we actually believe that? And if I were to look at your life, would I be convinced that you believe that? If your spouse or your kids or people in your community group were to look at your life, would they say, yes, he is fully satisfied in Jesus. He can do all these things and he's actually choosing not to for the sake of other people. And that's where I want to land us, just in a, in a moment of a few questions. And the next letter Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, The love of Christ controls us. We have concluded this, One has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for the sake of him who died and was raised. We can actually live for something different. We don't have to live for our own happiness, our own entitlement, our own rights. We can live for the sake of Christ because... His work was full and complete. So just a question maybe to write down and come back to later, to talk about with your community group this week, uh, to just process as we enjoy the rest of our day, or maybe as we even close with just a song, to be thinking through and letting rumble around your brain, what might the Lord be asking you to give up so that someone else can grow and mature in Him? Where might you be totally justified in your actions or decisions, but out of love for Christ and your brother or sister, you're actually choosing to lay that down? And if I were to look at my life, maybe just the last week, does my life demonstrate that I actually am finding and growing and finding my full satisfaction in Jesus and not my stuff, my money, my time, and how I live my life, but I'm actually finding my satisfaction in Jesus? And so I want to pray for you guys. Uh, just a couple of simple questions I really hope just kind of ruminate around your head as you go on through the day and through the week and continue enjoying the camp out. But am I truly satisfied with Jesus? And what might the Lord be asking me to lay down for the sake of someone else?